So if the first talk, as I titled it, was about Christ extending his incarnation through the sacraments, the notion of Christological Christian friendship being extended to us through the sacraments, seeing how the final goal of the sacraments is life and gracious friendship with Christ, that first talk emphasized, if you will, the divine spiritual aspect of the sacraments. And in this second talk, we want to look at how the sacraments take place from a more physical perspective. We want to look at how it is that we do a sacrament. How it is that we, humanly speaking, do a sacrament. Earlier, I had given two definitions of the sacraments, one by Aquinas and one by the Catechism on page one of your handout. Aquinas also gave another uh, definition. He said, um, as I put on your, at the top of page two, a sacrament effects what it signifies. A sacrament effects what it signifies. So if we compare what's going on in all these various definitions, the sacraments are certain sensible signs of invisible things by which a man is sanctified, or as the Catechism says, the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace. Basically, we're looking at three things in a sacrament. There is a sign, efficacy, and grace. In other words, there is a beginning, a causality, and an end. Sacraments effect what they signify. Let's explore that definition. A sacrament takes place within a liturgical context, a formalized ritual of the church, whereby we bestow honor and praise to God, and God bestows blessings upon us. There are lots of elements that come into play when we're doing a sacramental ritual. The number of ministers, the musical accompaniments, quality of the musical accompaniments. I've heard, I've heard from a family friend that the musical accompaniment here at St. Joseph's is fantastic. That's great. One could look at the use of candles, the words that the ministers say, the vestments that they use, so forth and so on. Lots of things are going on. Medieval theologians such as Aquinas are sensitive to how all of the elements of a solemn liturgy can play into the sacraments. At the same time, they want to know the minimum physically required to do a sacrament. They want to know what is the same between a solemn mass uptown at uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral here in New York City and the simplest mass said by a persecuted priest who has been thrown into jail by an anti-clerical government but who has been sneaked <clears throat> some bread and wine by a sympathetic guard. That minimum necessary is called in Latin the sacramentum tantum. You can see it there on your handout in italics. Literally, it means the sacrament alone, the sacramental rite in its bare minimum. Doing the sacramentum tantum, doing the minimal sacramental rite, is like cooking a special dish, potentially with different flavors. Depending upon the recipe, depending upon the ingredients, there will be a different result. So if, for the first session, my controlling analogy, my, the analogy that I was using was 
the remodeling program or the building program on TV, building your dream house. Uh, today we're going to the cooking channel, the spiritual cooking, or excuse me, this afternoon. The second talk, excuse me, is the uh, spiritual cooking channel, the sacramental cooking channel. According to Aquinas, the most basic factor or ingredient for our sacramental cooking is holiness. The sacrament flows from Christ, who is all holy, and the sacrament flows back to Christ by conferring Christ's holiness to the sacramental recipient. By, being, by bringing that transformed Christian to Christ. So holiness is a central, the most central ingredient in the sacraments. The second crucial factor for a sacrament is that it is a sign. A sign is an object or reality that leads an observer to some other object or reality. There are all sorts of signs with all sorts of reactions to those signs. So for instance, if I were to write on the whiteboard behind me, two plus two. Actually, that's three signs, but let's just say that it's a group. Let's take that together, two plus two. When we see that expression, we are led to the conclusion four. Two plus two signifies four. That's one kind of sign, an intellectual sign. A practical sign is one that moves us to do some action. For instance, you're driving a car. A red stoplight should be a practical sign that it's not safe to cross the street and that you should stop your car. That sign, the red light, should have a practical result. See the sign you put on your bricks. Some signs are found as the result of natural occurrences. For instance, if we see smoke floating up into the sky off in the distance, that's a sign that there's a fire burning below that smoke. Other signs occur through a man-made convention between persons, a contract, a contractual agreement. Let's go back to my streetlight example. As far as I know, there's no intrinsic reason that red should be the universal sign around the world for cars to stop. Perhaps, in some country, there are stoplights where a green light means stop and a red light means go. As far as I know, why not? A sacrament is a sign. It is an externalization, physically, of the interior orientation from God and toward God. Sacraments indeed cause grace, as I talked about in the first session, but they themselves are the result of God's holiness and grace already at work, at least in some imperfect form. It's a grace for action. We do a baptism as a sign of the gospel and grace already at work in our community, a sign that we too wish for further holiness. Namely, holiness to be given to the little Mary or the little John who is going to be baptized, or maybe Big John or Big Mary. It's an adult. So a sacrament signifies holiness. The holiness of God, of Christ, a holiness that can be applied to us human beings. Sanctity is that which qualifies a soul in a certain way. It is a form, and it is the perfection toward which it tends through union with God. It's an end. Holiness we receive in the sacraments 
that is signified in the sacraments is moving us to our end, moving us to God. So a sacrament depends upon holiness and points toward holiness. Indeed, it does does so through signing, through signification. So if we were to look at the very etymology of sacrament, it comes from the verb, sacrare, to consecrate, to set apart, set us apart through signs. And setting us apart and making us holy. On the one hand, a sacrament is an intellectual sign, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. A sacrament gives information. When we hear a priest baptizing and saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we can easily learn that this is a Christian baptism because of that Trinitarian reference, Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. The Jewish people would not baptize this way. And that Jewish example is not a totally made-up <coughs> example. In what's called Second Temple Judaism, so after the Babylonian exile, before Christ. When a pagan man converted to Judaism, the liturgical ritual of formal entrance into Judaism involved first circumcision, then a ritual bath, and finally participation in the Passover feast. But that Jewish bath of conversion would not have used a Trinitarian formula. So when we hear, when we see someone being washed in water, when we hear someone saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, we can be led to the intellectual conclusion, ah, this is a Christian sacrament going on. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Christians believe in that. So there's intellectual content in sacramental signification. And that the sacraments are given to us by Christ, the sacraments are not signs found in nature. The sacraments are not exactly like the cause and effect signification found with smoke signifying fire. There is a certain convention to the sacraments, meaning there is a certain artificiality or arbitrariness to the sacraments. They're not artificial in the sense that they're man-made, rather they're God-made. And in this sense, we are in the position of recipients for these gifts. We're not chefs that can drastically alter the recipe at will. Christ, in his divine wisdom, could have chosen any number of ingredients and quantities of those ingredients to cook together together the various sacraments that he wanted to give us. But he chose certain signs, and we're just reading the recipe book. If we leave the sacraments as defined just as I've done up to this point, namely as signs of the holy, Aquinas recognized a wide variety of sacraments throughout salvation history. He affirmed, for instance, instance, that there are Old Testament sacraments. For instance, the Jewish sacrifices of the Mosaic Law. For Aquinas, the Jewish sacrifices as sacraments signified interior faith in God and interior faith in the Christ to come. Aquinas thought that such Old Testament sacraments were good, for they involved an orientation to God. 
under this notion of the sacrament as signifying holiness, we could call Christ himself a sacrament, or the church a sacrament. For both Christ and the church are holy. I raise these examples of Christ and the church as sacraments because you may have heard this idea before, that Christ is a sacrament or the church is a sacrament. Indeed, I referred to Christ as a sacrament in the first talk. Aquinas himself does not call Christ or the church a sacrament, but such naming has been done in the 20th century and would not be inconsistent with Aquinas' thought. There is a crucial further element to the seven Catholic sacraments, the sacraments of the New Law, the sacraments of the New Testament. The crucial difference between the Catholic sacraments as opposed to the Old Testament sacraments is that the Catholic sacraments are signs that cause the holiness that they signify. So unlike the Old Testament sacraments, the New Testament sacraments actually cause spiritual grace through their physical rituals. When the Catholic Church or Aquinas or Catholics in general want to talk about the sacraments, they're taking this broad word sacrament, which could apply to Old Testament examples, which could apply to Christ, which could apply to the Church. They're applying that to the specific meaning of a sacred sign that causes the grace that it signifies. One, excuse me, in the seven particular instances called the seven Catholic sacraments. In that the sacraments are signs that bring about the effects, they are the ultimate in practical signs. They are therefore like the green stoplight that says go, but unlike the green stoplight, they are more powerful because the sacraments actually put the pedal to the metal. So long as you're not keeping your foot on the brake, the sacraments will move you forward. It's like a light that takes over when it says green. Maybe it's like these robot cars that they're inventing. They take over. <laughs> they're not exactly like the robot cars, though, because they, they want you to drive, too. So it's kind of like the robot is helping you, just like a speed boost, something like you know, Afterburner or something like that. As Christian signs, Aquinas understood the sacraments to signify various temporalities with respect to Christ. The sacraments point back, signify back in the past to Christ's salvific life on earth, especially his passion and resurrection. The sacraments uh, offer that past salvation, Christ's offer of salvation on the cross, and they apply it now in the present. And lastly, the sacraments point forward and bring us forward to life with Christ in heaven. So to summarize what we've seen so far, every sacramental rite involves spiritual holiness, physical signification, some rite that physically expresses holiness and points to and causes holiness, and we also see the sacrament brings about that spiritual effect, that holiness. But what makes one Catholic sacrament different than another? We know that a Catholic sacrament is different than a Jewish sacrament, like a cake by analogy is different than carrot stew. But what makes a chocolate cake different than a yellow cake? 
For this question, Aquinas developed a theory called sacramental hylomorphism, kind of a fancy word. I put it on your handout so you have um, the long, fancy word in front of you. Sacramental hylomorphism. It's an extension of the philosophy of Aristotle with respect to living things on Earth. Aristotle said that a living thing is composed of matter and an immaterial soul that gives form to the matter. The two have to be joined together in order for the living thing to exist. Do you remember back in your high school days reading Shakespeare's Hamlet and coming upon the line, A man may fish with the worm that hath eat of the king, and cat of the fish that hath fed of that worm? Remember that line from Hamlet? Hamlet is trying to get at the idea that that poor old king is going to become worm food, and the worm food is going to become fish food, and the fish is going to become cat food, and, well, the human beings are also going to eat the fish too. Not the cat. I heard, I heard that from the, uh, <laughs> the peanut gallery over here. In the cycle of life, the same matter can be recycled. Aristotle thought that the most fundamental matter, called prime matter, does not have independent existence, but he theorized that there must be some principle of matter that accounts for how a fish can eat worms and grow materially fat on those worms. A fat fish has eaten a lot of worms. There's a certain material transferability between living objects. So the molecules that compose a tree could be reassembled and become a turnip, or lots of turnips. So what's the difference between a tree and a turnip? Between the matter and the carbon and whatever else, and water and whatever else is in trees, in order to become turnips? That's where form comes into play. The matter that constitutes a tree is so shaped by the immaterial form of treeness. The matter that constitutes a turnip is informed by the form of turnipness, in order to be a turnip. So for Aristotle and Aquinas following him, substances, things, involve matter and an immaterial form. Fact that you are a human being and not a dog or a cat or a tree is because you have a human form, a human soul. Being joined to a human body, voila, wonderful human beings in our presence. Now, turning to the sacraments. Aquinas, as others before him, such as St. Augustine, Aquinas saw that the sacramental rites involved, number one, the saying of certain verbal formulae, formulae, and two, the doing of certain gestures, like washing or anointing, or the use of certain objects, such as bread and wine. The two, though, the verbal formulae and the gestures and objects, these two must go together to have a sacrament. A baptism does not just involve washing a baby. If so, every baby will be baptized the first time its mother or father gave the baby a bath. Rather, the words and the gestures need to be together. So Aquinas said, okay, let's apply this language of the philosophy of nature to the sacraments. So let's take those words, form and matter, and, help, and use that to help us make sense of the sacraments. 
So every sacrament necessarily involves an action or object that is like the matter and a verbal formula that is like the form. That's what's going on with sacramental hylomorphism. What I put in your handout is the form of a sacrament plus the matter of a sacrament. That's part of our recipe for a sacramental rite. <coughs> Both the sacramental matter and the sacramental form signify something. The gesture or object signifies something and the words signify something. When a sacrament is done, the two are joined together in order to have a joint signification. They jointly work together to produce one signification, one sign act. Each element, the matter and the form, already signifies something of the sacrament. Each element independently is already in some way signifying the one signification intended for each sacrament. It's not as if each sacramental element is totally undetermined. So, a concrete example of what's going on. Bread. Bread, by its very existence, signifies the goodness of God's gift of life, the nourishment needed for life to be strong and flourish, and the joy of a community meal. Very different than if I put a rock on the altar, for instance. Rocks do not have that signification. Wine, by its very existence, already signifies the sweetness of life and the joy of happiness. Alcoholic happiness. In moderation, of course. Moderation. If I put petroleum oil on the altar, it would not have that same signification. So, bread and wine, by themselves, provide a certain apt matter for the sacrament of the Eucharist. Aquinas said that the words used in the sacraments signify better than the actions or objects. So if you're pouring water over a baby, that could be because you're trying to wash the baby, or have fun with the baby, sprinkle water and see if the baby will laugh, or drown the baby. But with the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, your intention is much clearer. In the real world, a substantial form and matter do not have real existence apart from each other. You do not see substantial forms of trees lying around on the beach or floating around in the air, looking to marry tree matter. In contrast, a sacramental form and matter do have real existence apart from each other. Bread and wine can have quite normal existences without being used in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Conversely, I could say the words used in a sacrament, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, I could say those words without having any intention to consecrate the Eucharist. I just said them, and yet I'm not confecting the Eucharist here. I'm not celebrating Mass. We've already done that. And God willing, we'll do it more later. But put together, the independent sacramental matter and the independent sacramental form can do something new. They can together constitute a new sacramental activity. Because a sacramental form and a sacramental matter can have independent existence, we have to realize that our use of the language of form and matter with respect to the sacraments is a use of analogy. A substantial form, such as the form of treeness, 
has no physicality. But a sacramental form, such as the words, I choose you to be my wife, that must have physicality. A man cannot marry his wife by wishing nice, happy thoughts inside his brain. The woman wants to hear the words aloud, spoken to <laughs> I choose you to be my wife. Nice, happy thoughts inside the brain is not sufficient. But by analogy, on a spectrum of physicality, the sacramental matter is more material and the sacramental form, the, action, the, the words, is more spiritual. The spoken word, by analogy, is more ephemeral or otherworldly than water splashed on the face. So a sacrament involves the union of a form and a matter. That form and matter constitute the sacramentum tantum, the basic sacramental ritual that must take place for a sacrament to take place. The history of sacramental life illustrates that there certainly have been different sacramental forms used over time and in different places. St. Thomas knew of such differences. We know of such differences. So for instance, when a Roman Catholic priest does a baptism, he says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you know any Greek Catholics, if you know any Catholics, let's say from Lebanon uh, or from Eastern Europe, they are going to baptize with a different formula. The priests in a Greek Catholic uh, baptism will say, you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that can raise a question. If a sacrament is at least partially defined by the verbal formula, how can a Roman Catholic baptism be the same as a Greek Catholic baptism if they're using different words? There's a further element that's needed. This is called the essence or substance of a sacrament. This is the most, that, that essence or substance is the most basic structure that controls and directs the signification of a sacrament. The essence of a sacrament is signified in the sacramentum tantum, the matter and the form together, but the essence or substance is there in a diffused way. So, if you will, if we want to take all the ingredients for a sacrament, we can lay them out in a kind of pyramid structure, as I've done on your handout. So the most basic level is what I've listed there as the essence or substance of any sacrament. Any sacrament must involve an external and sensible sign. It must be instituted by God. It must have an appropriate minister. It must have an interior grace that's given. Any sacrament has to involve that. So that's kind of the first ingredient. What we're doing here needs that essence. We're not talking about reading the gospel, for instance. Reading the gospel can have a physicality to it, but it doesn't necessarily have the institution done by God in order to confer interior grace through a physical, sensible sign action. So that's the first thing. The second layer of our pyramid is the essence of a particular sacrament. So baptism, for instance. Baptism involves some sacred sign instituted by Christ in order to convey a participation in Christ's divine life. 
And that sign must involve washing with water and a Trinitarian formula. Which Trinitarian formula? I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? At this point, either one is acceptable. We just know that there's some basic core of baptism in our mixing bowl. That's the second layer, second ingredient going in. Then comes the sacramental form, the words. I baptize you, etc., etc. You are baptized, etc., etc., either one. And then the sacramental matter, in terms of baptism, the pouring of water over the uh, head of the individual being baptized, or the dunking in water, the immersion, either way. What I've tried to describe and what I've tried to portray in your hand or on your handout is that there are various levels, and those levels are more or less important. The wider level of the period of the pyramid is more important than what's at the top and is smaller. If you will, let's say this is a cake. The foundation and the layers are more important than the icing. And the icing is the icing on the cake. I mean, it's, you can have a cake without the icing. Now, in this case, you can't have a cake without the matter. But the idea is that <laughs> the idea is that the base layer of the cake is more important than thing at the highest level of the cake. You can't have the thing at the highest level of the cake unless you have the base, and you work your way up. When you're baking your cake and building your cake, <laughs> you don't want to start from the top down. You want to start from the bottom up. Good recommendation for a cooking show. I've been describing how a sacramental rite occurs, how the sacramental tantum is produced. But how do we get the gift of grace out of all this? The grace of a sacrament occurs through the doing of the sacramental sign, and the results follow in a stage fashion. Basically, if we take what we've been doing, what we did on the first page at the bottom, how God works through his ministers, works through Christ and his humanity, works through a sacramental minister, for instance, a priest, working through a sacramental rites in order to impact a sacramental recipient, we're going to get the conferral of grace, and that conferral of grace occurs in a stage structure. There's a certain process to the gift of grace. So we have a sign of grace, and then the actual gift of grace. In order to explain this, I put a diagram on the bottom of page two, what's called the tripartite structure of a sacrament. It's how a sacramental sign leads to an effect. There are a couple of Latin terms I'm going to explain as we go through this, so don't worry if you don't understand the Latin. I'm throwing them out because sometimes people refer to them but this will be a nice way that all of us have heard about them, and we can talk about these technical differences. First off, there is what I've already described as the sacramentum tantum, the exterior sign, the form and matter. Form, I baptize you in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for instance. Matter, the washing with water, that has to go together. Then we get, that gives us the exterior sign. That's the base. When we do that, God uses that, that liturgical rite, in order to boost us to a second level, to boost the sacramental recipient to a second level. 
That's the intermediate stage that I've described on your handout under the title Res et Sacramentum. Literally, that means thing and sign, thing and sacrament. So there has been already, at that stage two, an effect, but that effect is itself a sign that leads to, that causes a further effect. It bounces us up to the third stage. So it's kind of like being bounced up from stage one, from stage one to stage two to stage three. Stage three is the final effected grace of a sacrament, the goal of the sacrament, the res tantum. Res means thing. So basically the thing itself, the final effected <coughs> grace. Stage one leads to stage two, and together, one and two lead to stage three. And all of that can be called a sacrament. So that's why it's a bit difficult to use the word sacramentum, because are you talking about the whole thing, the whole caboodle, or are you talking just about stage one? That's a bit of a tricky thing that theologians have to be careful about. Let's use a particular example. Let's talk about baptism. Baptism, we did the baptismal rites. We get to that intermediate stage. In baptism, that's the gift of character. That permanent configuration to Christ, whereby we are adopted sons and daughters of the Father, brothers and sisters in Christ, oriented toward the worship of God. But that configuration is supposed to lead us to the full life of God, the life of the restantum, the life of the final effected grace. Not just having the structure of being an adopted son and daughter, but the life of being a good son or daughter. The reality is, or not the reality, the, uh, the fact is, we can put blocks up against a sacrament from fully flourishing. So I use the example, and someone was talking to me during the break, they use the example in the first session about Episcopalian baptism. And we said, that, well, it's kind of like a wobbly circular saw. It creates some jagged um, cuts for our mansion. Episcopalian baptism is good, it confers that stage two, the resident sacramentum, it gives baptismal character. But there's a difficulty with achieving the final effect, stage three, the res tantum. If someone is receiving Episcopalian baptism with a conscious decision that Catholicism is bad, that the Pope is a fake, that the Catholic sacraments, all seven of them, are just hocus pocus, illegitimate, that all those morals that Christ taught us in the Bible and that the church teaches, that that's just kind of optional stuff. We don't need to apply it or live by it nowadays. We're putting up a block against Christ's grace, against Christ's life. That would be like putting a line through stage two and stage three. As Catholics, or as anyone, we want to remove the blocks. We want the sacrament to move us from stage one to stage two to stage three. 
That's the sacrament, how it signifies holiness and achieves holiness in us. How though do we get seven sacraments? I've said that a sacrament effects what it signifies. So basically, we need different inputs in order to achieve different outputs. St. Thomas made an analogy between our needs as human beings on the physical level and how we meet those needs through physical um, goods. In the same way, we have spiritual needs that can be met by the spiritual goods that are the sacraments. So, for instance, all of us need to be born in order to live. By analogy, we need the sacrament of baptism in order to live spiritually. All of us need to grow toward maturity. We need the sacrament of confirmation spiritually in order to reach adult Christian maturity. All of us need food in order to live physically. All of us need the Eucharist in order to live and flourish, be nourished spiritually. And so forth and so on with the other seven, with the other four sacraments. If we turn to page three, we can look at at how the various sacraments involve various inputs, the sacramentum tantum, the exterior ritual, and how that leads to various effects. The intermediate effect, the res sacramentum, leading to the final effect, the res tantum. We go from left to right, Stage one to stage two to stage three. The sacraments are earthy in that they use our physical capacities and our physical presuppositions and inclinations in order to bring about sanctification. They reflect how we are as physical beings. We are not angels. And so thankfully, God does not save us like he saved the angels. He saves us in a way that's properly physical, reflecting how we are physical. That physicality of the sacraments can be both beautiful and messy. The use of bread and wine, for instance, in the confection of the Eucharist, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, has a beautiful simplicity to it. And yet, the sacrament of the Eucharist can be messy. There are, for instance, particles. When the priest has to break the hosts for distribution of Holy Communion. And so you notice the priest takes care to purify the vessels out of reverence for this beautiful but messy sacrament. Or, when Christ comes to a sick person in the anointing of the sick through his Catholic priest. It's not necessarily the best moment on earth in terms of everyone being very happy in a joyful, physical way. No, someone could be dying. And yet, even in that messy situation, Christ can give his beautiful sanctification. So a sacrament is very earthy, it's very sensory. You will think of Catholicism and its kind of Mediterranean roots. Um, we cannot be angels just kind of floating around in the sky. We need to be very concrete with, with the sacraments. 
What we put into them is what we're going to get out of them. We put our physicality into the sacraments in order to receive something quite transformative, spiritual sanctification. The fact that we get to that spiritual reality, that spiritual effect, involves that we are not just bodies. The sacraments are also brainy. They're not just earthy, they're also brainy. In other words, because they are signs, we need to use our brains, our noggins, in order to interpret them. For instance, understanding the words, trying to understand what's going on in these signs. We come to them in faith, which is an intellectual virtue. The sacraments build our faith. And so we want our faith and our sacramental life to go together, to work together. In the sacraments being both brainy and earthy, this does not mean that we have to be, um, have everything explained to us in the sacraments. There is a role for allowing for mystery in the sacraments, for the fact that we do not understand everything in the sacraments. So for instance, if a priest were to do a sacrament in Latin, for us as Latin Catholics, we may not understand the Latin that's being said. Hopefully the priest does. We should hopefully understand it. But if someone does not understand it intellectually, he may be able to understand it visually. He may be able to see the water being poured over the baby and be able to understand, oh yes, holy sanctification is cleansing this baby of sin, of original sin. We don't understand the words that the priest is saying, but I understand what's going on. And that mystery, that lack of full comprehension can be to our benefit. It can be, indeed, to our sanctification. The fact that we don't understand everything can lead us to understand the fact that we're dealing with divine realities. This brings me to the last point that I'd like to make this afternoon. The fact that we are supposed to be involved in the sacraments. It's a what's called sacramental devotion and sacramental participation. We are not passive recipients in the sacraments. Rather, we have an active role to play, even if a sacrament is being done to us. That chain of sacramental causality that I put on page one may lead to the idea of thinking, well, a sacramental recipient, the person at the bottom of the chain, is just being moved, is just being acted upon by these higher up instruments. God, Christ, the priest, the sacramental rite. In fact, the sacramental recipient should also be a sacramental actor. Now, it could be that the sacramental recipient is not doing too much. That's evident. A baby, for instance, when being baptized, isn't doing too much. Or actually, we hope the baby is not doing too much. If the baby is crying, um, we'd rather have the baby be quiet. <laughs> or, as was mentioned, I used to serve when I was a younger priest at our parish down at the University of Virginia. One of the other priests, when he was doing a baptism when I was there, he had a rather um, interesting experience as a three-year-old or so being baptized. 
three-year-olds can talk, and they can have a mind of their own, but they don't necessarily know what's going on and what's coming out of their mouths. So this three-year-old uh, was yelling as he was being brought to the baptismal font, I do not want to be baptized. I do not want to be baptized. <laughs> Father said, I baptize you. <laughs> Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Ideally, we can contribute to the sacramental signs. We at least make ourselves available for that sacramental gift, for the signs to be applied to us. And that receptivity is itself part of the sign. For instance, another example, the sacraments are not for those who are dead. A sacramental recipient has to be living. Even in that openness, that living openness to God's grace, that living person is able to contribute. A dead person, unfortunately, cannot contribute as a part of a living sacramental sign. That leads to a certain distinction, what's called the distinction between ex opere operato and ex opere operatus, the final things I put on your handout. What's called ex opere operato is the grace from the sacramental rite itself, literally from the work being worked, from the sacramental rite being done, certain grace is given. At the same time, our subjective participation can affect what level of grace we receive. That's what's called ex opere operantis, literally from the work of the person working. And this is on the part both of the sacramental agent who is, let's say, the minister, the priest, or layperson in certain sacraments, as well as the sacramental recipient. Both persons play a role in this subjective devotion. And that can affect the level of grace that's given to us, the relative state of holiness to which the sacrament leads us and brings us. A practical example. Let's say you're doing well, well not so you, let's say some other person. Everyone here is always doing well, I'm sure. <laughs> let's say someone outside this building is doing well, living in the state of grace. But then mm, something happens, they do a big sin, a mortal sin. They're now in a negative state. They're in a state of sin, let's say, um, you know, if you had an XY chart, remember in math, you know, they're, let's say, at negative three. Things are not going well. They're in, they're in negative territory. They're in the red. We don't want to be in the red. We want to be in positive territory. That person is given grace by God to get themselves to Father Sebastian here at the Catholic Center in order to go to the sacrament of penance. Now, Father Sebastian is a good holy priest. So, through that person's encounter with Father Sebastian, they are able to be boosted up into positive territory. Let's say plus five. Now if they come to me, I'm not as good as Father Sebastian. <laughs> I'm kind of a lackadaisical priest. They come in, they take one look at me, and they're like, man, this Catholic thing, I don't know. It's maybe going to work, maybe not. 
their level of subjective devotion is not going to be as great. So they're not going to respond as much to the sacrament. They're certainly going to be into positive territory. That's the grace from the sacrament to write itself, ex obiorato. They're certainly in positive territory, but because of me, poor old slacker Father Dominic, they're not going to be at plus five with Father Sebastian, or maybe plus ten if they're working with St. John Paul II. When they're working with me, they're just going to get up to plus two. The same thing can happen with how we react when we practice the sacrament. So let's flip it around. Let's say, God forbid, I go and get myself into mortal sin. I'm still slacker Father Dominic. Like, okay, I did a, I did a big sin. I gotta go to confession now. Oh, I really don't want to go to confession. Okay, I better do it. Okay. And I kind of like gradually get myself into the confession. Now, Father Sebastian, or St. John Paul II, Father John Paul, uh, Father Carroll, before he was Pope, could be exhorting me. They could be doing great work. You need to be a saint. You need to do this penance. And I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. Just give me the penance, say the words, and I'm out of here. Same sort of thing can happen. Am I contributing much positively to being boosted up in holiness? Am I doing the subjective devotion that is going to lead to the best sacramental grace? In my case, as Father Slacker, uh, Slacker Father Dominic, no. So, we can and should practice the sacramental virtue. We should give ourselves to the sacramental actions, to the sign actions that constitute the sacraments and that give us grace. In doing so, we utilize the gifts of God. God could have saved us without our input. Nonetheless, he saves us with our input. He enables us to be instruments of his grace in our own salvation, and indeed in the salvation of others. He enables us to help ourselves and to help others. God is always the primary agent in our salvation. But we, and the sacraments, are secondary agents. God's greatness is not thereby limited. Rather, God is even more generous in the sacraments, enabling us to be instruments of grace. So give yourselves to the lives through the life of the sacraments. Give yourself to sacramental virtue. God will be exalted, you will be healed, you will be perfected, and you will be exalted.